Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Labor Know Your Rights podcast, brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. They can be found at www.nljsp.us. Hello, listeners. I'm happy to announce that we now have a toll-free number for our listeners to leave a comment or a question. Please dial one 625 8610. If you are outside of the U.S., Canada, or Caribbean, or if you want to make your recording using a voice recorder, please visit www.lifeonrecord.com slash podcast slash question mark EID equals E43B98. You can also visit the show notes to get the link there or our website and follow the link there. Do you know somebody that has a birthday, anniversary, or any other special occasion coming up? A great way to give them a wonderful gift is a meaningful audio keepsake of phoned in stories, memories, and well wishes from family and friends telling the recipient why they are so special. For more information, visit lifeonrecord.com. Great way to get a toll-free number so any of your friends and family can call in and leave these messages and you can get it recorded onto a keepsake for the person you're giving this to. The Pullman Strike The commander of the U.S. Army Regiment at Fort Keogh in eastern Montana looked through his binoculars, scanning the railroad tracks and limitless prairie for any sign of movement. It was April 25, 1894. He had orders to stop a Northern Pacific freight train at all costs. This hijacked train was carrying 500 angry men. These were the unemployed, miners, teamsters, and rail yardmen of Idaho and western Montana. They had announced that they would ride the stolen train to take their protest to the nation's capital. They had already beat back attempts by authorities to retake the train. At Billings, There had been an exchange of gunfire with a bystander being killed. The soldiers are hiding by the road bed, guns at the ready. This is an example of the absurd character of the struggle of worker rights in America. Desperate men on a stolen train determined to cross the country to petition Congress for relief, and heavily armed soldiers waiting in ambush to stop them, prepared to shoot and kill their fellow citizens if need be. The year before, the nation entered the worst depression experience so far in history. Despair everywhere. The Union Pacific and Erie Railways was in debt and behind on payments. Banks had failed. Over 400 closed. At this time, unemployment records were not kept, but it was estimated that as many as 200,000 in New York, 100,000 in Chicago, and over 62,000 in Philadelphia were unemployed. Private charities could only do so much. Families slept in public parks, parents having to find ways to get food and milk for their children. Husbands left in search of work. Many never returned. The only good out of this was it energized reformers to address the conditions of slum dwellers, the jobless, and the poor. For labor... This and the struggle of the last decade or so had honed them, creating a surge in membership. 
public and official concerns about the accumulative power of both capital and labor would soon be bring the federal government and the courts into the fray. Carnegie Steel Homestead Works, America's largest steel-making complex, and a complex it was. Sitting on the river Monongala, southeast of Pittsburgh, over 50 acres with three separate mills, a port, and a private railroad. 3,800 workers, 750 of them the most skilled, were members of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers. Carnegie, in 1889, tried to defeat the Union, but the members formed a human wall around the plant and successfully drove away the company scabs and detectives. Faced with such unexpected solidarity as well as sympathy strike at related Carnegie operations, including the railroads on which Homestead relied, the company surrendered. It agreed to work rules and set wages on a sliding scale to reflect the prevailing price of steel products. This contract was for three years. In 1892, when the contract was about to expire, Carnegie went on an extended vacation to Scotland, leaving Henry Frick to deal with the Union. Frick, a millionaire himself, having owned H.C. Frick, a leading vendor of iron coke, till Carnegie still bought the business. Henry Frick was no friend of labor, so much so that he once picked a striker up and threw him and his belongings into a creek. Frick wanted Homestead to be union-free. Carnegie later claimed that the first report of bloodshed came came on me like a thunderbolt in a clear sky. A New York paper in mid-June printed a headline, A Bitter Struggle Coming, above a story about the deteriorating situation and Frick's elaborate measures to prepare for violence. Frick ordered a 10-foot fence around the plant topped with barbed wire, cut holes into it for rifles, and installed searchlights on a series of watchtowers. He arranged barges to bring Pinkerton agents in. The workers seeing these changes renamed Homestead Plant Fort Frick. On June 28th, Frick locked the entire workforce out and announced as of July 1st, Homestead would be operated as a non-union mill. Immediately, amalgamated went on strike, taking the non-union workers with them. The union divided 1,000 volunteers into watch committees to keep an eye on scabs, spies, and interlopers. They even rented a boat, the Edna, to patrol the riverfront in front of the plant. On July 5th, Sheriff William McCleary showed up with a detachment of deputies to secure the homestead works. A watch committee intercepted them and escorted them onto the Edna. This was likely a setup so that Frick could use Pinkertons and armed forces. The Carnegie Company purchased two vessels for use by the Pinkertons. The Iron Mountain, which served as a floating dormitory for 300 Pinkerton agents, and the Monongala, which held a kitchen and dining area. A tugboat, the Little Billy, had been engaged to tow them into position. The Union's boat, the Edna, shoved off to engage the intruders, firing warning shots in the direction of the Little Billy, before turning back to give warning to workers. Not only had the strikers heard the Edna's shrill whistle of warning, 
but so had the town on the other side of the river. The residents came to the river's edge. Some were armed with shotguns and pistols. Others had hoes, rakes, and similar implements. As the barges neared the strikers, they were warned not to come ashore. Captain Hind of the Pinkertons replied, We were sent here to take possession of this property and to guard it for this company. We do not wish to shed blood, but if you men don't withdraw, we will mow every one of you down. Considering the Pinkertons were outnumbered, it was a bold threat. A striker vowed, Before you enter those mills, you will have to trample over the dead bodies of 3,000 honest working men. A few strikers moved to block any attempt by the Pinkertons to disembark. William Foy lay down on the gangplank and drew a revolver. Captain Hind, coming toward him, swung at Foy with his baton and then accidentally stepped on an oar that had bounded upward and struck another worker in the face. Suddenly shots were fired, wounding both Foy and Hind. Then more shots, and several Pinkertons went down, causing the rest of the Pinkertons to retreat below. In the morning, the Pinkertons tried to land again, resulting in an exchange of gunfire. The Pinkertons killed and wounded several strikers. This agitated the crowd so much that the Pinkertons gave up on the idea of landing the barges. As the little Billy began towing barges, the captain raised the American flag. The workers fired on the tug, sending the captain and crew to cover and injuring one crewman. The little Billy abandoned the Pinkerton barges. The strikers, angered over the death of their fellow strikers, grabbed some small skiffs and got alongside the barges and fired and threw projectiles. Only 40 of the Pinkertons were full-time agents. The rest hired on to guard the mill. Lacking adequate training and motivation, even the veteran agents began to recognize the hopelessness of their position when a white flag they raised in surrender was blown to shreds. Sheriff McCleary wired Pennsylvania Governor Robert E. Pattison at once for the militia. Pattison, aware that Carnegie was using this as an excuse to bring in troops, and suspecting McCleary's earlier visit to the mill was likely staged, hesitated to intervene. Eventually, amalgamated leaders told the mob that the Pinkertons agreed to turn over their arms and would be arrested by Sheriff McCleary for murder. But as the Pinkertons came off the barges, the strikers beat them. Some were stabbed or even shot. They then took what they could off the barges and set the barges on fire. As the Pinkertons were marched through town, men, women, and even children came out of their houses to add more injuries to them. Attacking them with any handy object, they were secured in the opera house until late that night when a special train arrived and took them away. The attack on the surrendering Pinkertons was generally condemned by the public. It also played right into the Carnegie Company plant, who announced that the mill would be union-free from now on and they would never recognize Amalgamated or any other labor organization again. On July 12th, the strikers were still occupying the site. The governor agreed to a request by Frick for troops. The commander, George Snowden, with 8,000 troops, was able to take control of Homestead. Soon scavs were running the mills, and in mid-November, Amalgamated admitted defeat.
Another setback at the labor movement occurred at the same time in the silver and copper mines region of western Idaho at Coeur d'Alene, where a miners' union violently resisted the importation of scabs only to be crushed in turn by soldiers and a declaration of martial law. Hundreds of strikers had been rounded up and imprisoned in a crude detention camp. Then came a pair of anarchists who had been so upset about the Carnegie affair that they decided to bring it to the American public's attention by committing their own crime, an assassination of the man who was guilty of the crimes at Carnegie, none other than Frick. But this attempt failed. Berkman was able to stab Frick but failed to kill him. It soon came to the police attention that he had a German woman as a lover and Goldman was arrested. In the 1890s, the southern state legislatures had begun the devious process of eliminating black voting across the former Confederacy. In 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court in Pleasy v. Ferguson certified Jim Crow segregation as the law of the land. Black inferiority appeared beyond question. As for the workers of color, now formerly a second-class citizen, separate but equal, Part of the problem was demographics. Until 1900, no more than 10% of black Americans resided in the North, which was rapidly industrializing. The percentage in mining and agriculture empires of the West was even smaller, less than 1%. At the same time, the perception of the Negro as an agricultural serf had been so firmly established by slavery and sharecropping system, and now by law. Neither had the labor movement shown itself willing to accommodate African-American workers. The National Labor Union, the Knights of Labor, and the American Federation gave lip service to the idea of creating and maintaining a biracial labor coalition. They did occasionally make strides towards black organizing in the South, which is revealed in the ferocity in which the Knights were targeted by the KKK. Gompers of the AFL, as with others, saw African Americans as a pool of cheap labor that companies would use against labor. Gompers said, Wage workers, like many others, not care to socially meet colored people, but as then working men are not justified in refusing them the right of the opportunity to organize for their common protection. If organizations do, we will only make enemies of them, and in necessity, they will be antagonistic to our interest. In 1886, the founding of the AFL would include the whole labor element of this country, and he vowed never to discriminate against a fellow worker on account of color, creed, or nationality. The AFL was limited in what it could do when locals who excluded members due to their race some created locals for whites and another for black workers in the same field. Some locals were angry over an attempt by the AFL to have locals remove any language of exclusion in their constitutions. The anger was from the AFL not being open about the exclusion, not from the exclusion itself. In 1892, AFL locals, white and black, skilled and unskilled, came together in New Orleans. A walkout of streetcar drivers demanding 12-hour days. 
16 hours being the, the current shifts. Arbitration ruled in the driver's favor. This inspired other workers to move in other areas. The AFL gained 30 new locals, including two biracial locals of Teamsters and warehouse workers. On October 24, 1892, these biracial locals struck for a 10-hour day, overtime wages, and exclusive union bargaining authority. The town's conservative board of trade retaliated with calls for the militia and court injunctions. Commercial leaders and the press used race baiting and warnings of Negro domination. A call for a general strike was the next move by the unionists. On November 8th, an estimated 25,000 people halted work. In the end, the uh, governor's threats to deploy the militia and declare martial law ended the strike, but their demands were met. The Board of Trade saw to it that Numerous strike leaders were indicted for violating an injunction under the Sherman Antitrust Act. In the 1870s, George Pullman came out with his elegant new sleeping car. He felt that people would appreciate the comfort and would be willing to pay a little more to do so. And they were. In 1889, he applied the philosophy to his employees by creating a model community next to Chicago, meant to alleviate the hardship and insecurity in the lives of workers and their dependents. The Pullman sleeper car would become synonymous with the indulgence of superior rail travel. The model town of Pullman, Illinois, was to be the source of one of the most infamous labor disputes in American history. George went to work for his father, Lewis, who ran a business lifting and moving buildings. He took over the business when his father died in 1853. He moved large buildings and even a whole block of buildings and stores. Rail travel was new, but travel by rail had some major issues. The benches were hard wood. In the summer, it was hot in the cars and too cold in the winter. Soot was going into the cars and the vibration made sleeping almost impossible. The trip between New York and Chicago took three and a half days. Pullman took on these challenges buying used cars. He refurbished them. He made several prototypes. One, the Pioneer, was used in May 1865 as part of the funeral train carrying the remains of President Lincoln from Chicago to Springfield, Illinois. After 1869, transcontinental rail travel created a new need that Pullman filled, creating the first dining car, a parlor car that was said to be a hotel lobby on wheels. Pullman was able to maintain the quality and cleanliness of his cars by maintaining ownership of his cars, only leasing their usage to the rail companies. Pullman became intrigued by the strike of 1877, looking at the cause, he felt that the slums were a blight on America industry, and as he was needing to create a new factory, he decided to create a community for his new workers at this factory that would be based on business efficiency. Pullman purchased 4,000 acres of former marshland along the shore of Lake Columet, about 12 miles south of Chicago 
business district. He built his town, which included schools, a theater, a shopping arcade, a man-made lake, along with worker housing. The rent was slightly higher than what was charged elsewhere in Chicago. The Chicago World's Fair delayed the economical downturn of 1893, but by summer-slash-fall of 1893, orders had diminished. The company laid off more than 3,000 employees to reduce uh, and reduced hours and wages of those who remained. Although they were able to rehire 2,000 by the spring of 1894 at a lower rate, the wage cuts averaged 25 to 33 percent, and in some cases 50 percent. This enabled both the company and workers to survive their downturn, but Pullman's strong ethical views of charity led him to insist his workers pay competitive rent for their housing. That was not feasible with the reduced wages. Because rent and utilities were deducted from wages, little was left for the workers. Pullman's idea against unions was well known. His wealth was a dividing point between him and his workers. His foreman and middle management dealt with many issues with workers, creating more separation between him and his workers. When Pullman was involved, the results were often harsh, as when he banned meetings by workers in his town who had joined the Knights of Labor, and arranged to fire those he considered organizers. Pullman imposed strict sanitary rules, banned alcohol and prostitution, imposed a curfew, and restricted the use of tobacco. No one, not even a group wanting to form a church, was allowed to buy any of his land. With 4,000 residents, many immigrants, one protester said, Born in a Pullman house, fed from a Pullman shop, taught in a Pullman school, catechized in a Pullman church, and when we die, we will be buried in a Pullman cemetery and go to the Pullman hell. By the spring of 1894, Pullman workers and their families were meeting outside of town in order to discuss their predicament. Away from Years of company spies. On top of their cuts in pay, they had heard that Pullman had not cut his salary nor those of his top executives and had kept high dividends for his stockholders. On May 7th, they sent representatives to meet with company vice president Thomas Wicks, who asked them to put their grievances in writing and return for another conversation on May 9th, at which George Pullman would attend. Pullman explained that he had cut wages because orders were down and that he was attempting to manage the amount of work available to limit layoffs. He asserted that the firm had agreed to several low-bid work contracts to maintain employment levels. He offered to let workers examine the company's financial books to verify this and vowed there would be no reprisals against the worker representatives. Due to an apparent misunderstanding or extremely poor timing, three of the workers' representatives were let go the next day. Fed up with his greed, obstinacy, and double dealings, his workers set their tools down two days later. Just a couple of months earlier, an uprising had begun like no other before as armies of unemployed citizens, emanating from dozens of cities, villages, mines, and lumber camps, marched to demand work. The instigator was Jacob Coxey. 
He had lobbied Congress for years to enact legislation that would assist the unemployed by creating jobs to build roads and other public infrastructure. Coxley announced a plan to walk from Ohio to the nation's capital with 100,000 fellow citizens, a petition in boots. The march departed Massillon on March 25, 1894, with 500 people. The press and public at first doubted whether such a ragtag bunch would really cover by foot the 400 miles. But as the little army neared the Potomac on April 30th, curiosity to, to concern. But Coxey was arrested within hours for trespassing on the lawn of the Capitol, but not before he gave a statement to reporters. Up these steps, the lobbyists of trust and corporations have passed unchallenged on their way to the committee rooms, access to which we, the representatives of the tolling wealth producers, have been denied. We stand here today in behalf of millions of toilers whose petition have been buried in committee rooms, whose prayers have been unresponded to, and whose opportunities for honest, remunerative labor have been taken away from them by unjust legislation which protects idlers, speculators, and gamblers. Although this march was a failure, it did get the attention of government officials and inspired dozens of marches across the nation. Most daring was the hijacking of the Montana trains. The state was hit hard by the collapse of the mining industry, putting 20,000 men out of work. As many as 500 followers of unemployed teamster William Hogan, they seized a Northern Pacific freight train in Butte on April 24th. Federal marshals attempted to halt the stolen train and take Hogan into custody, but Butte citizens rallied to the hijacker's defense. Similar actions occurred at Bozeman, Livingston, and Columbus. At Billings, guns blazed, a bystander was shot and killed. The marshal withdrew, and the, tra the train continued on. The hijackers thought that was the last of the trouble, as that was the last major stop. But west of current-day Forsyth, the tracks were barricaded by federal troops. U.S. Attorney General Richard Olney having received a telegram about the shooting, called out the army from Fort Keogh. They stopped the train and arrested Hogan and his men. The Pullman Company was not a railroad company, but because it had a short rail at the plant, the American Railway Union, ARU, considered it good enough to be eligible for its workers to join the union. Started in 1893, its founder and president, Eugene B. Debs was inclusive. Any worker could join no matter the craft or job title. In 1894, the ARU had a surge of new members after a strike against the St. Paul-based Great Northern Railroad, shutting it down for two weeks when the St. Paul Chamber of Commerce forced the owners, James Hill, into arbitration, where the union nearly had all their demands met, including a wage hike. This made the ARU larger than the fourth largest railroad brotherhoods combined, having more than 125,000 members. On June 12, 1894, the ARU held a convention. Pullman workers, having joined in March, asked the 400 delegates for the union's help as of May 11th. 
All but 10% of Pullman's 3,800 workers had walked out. One Pullman worker, a father of four, rose before the gathering and said, I think that when a man is sober and steady and has a saving wife, and after working two and a half years for a company, he finds himself in debt for a common living, something must be wrong. The AARU asked Pullman to submit the issues with the employees to arbitration. When he refused, Debs was unsure of himself and the ARU. He hated Pullman's arrogance, but the ARU was new, had little money on hand, but the more Pullman was unwilling to compromise, the more worker resentment built up. The workers were ready for a fight, but this time not only were they angry, but also organized. June 21st, the convention decided that its members who were switchmen would not handle any Pullman cars after the 26th unless Pullman agreed to arbitration. Again, he refused. With the switchman work stoppage, the great Pullman strike began. The big rail companies sided with Pullman, refusing to remove his cars from their trains. The railroad brotherhoods joined along with many other sympathetic unions. This strike created a lot of fear. The nation was even more dependent on the rails than in 1877. The 1877 strike was so far the most violent and destructive, but had been spontaneous. This one was organized, crossed rail occupation lines, and had sympathetic backing of other unions. Within a few days, rail workers in 27 states and territories refused to handle trains with Pullman cars. Soon freight and passenger trains in Chicago were not moving. They were slowed as far west as San Francisco. On, Ju on July 4th, the New York Times wrote, The big ice companies have been making almost superhuman efforts today to avoid suspending operations, but they gave up tonight, and thousands of sick and suffering in hospitals, public institutions, and private homes will be added to the already gigantic roster of innocent victims of the strike just outside the city. There are miles of loaded cars with their contents rotting in the sun. Editorial pages wasted no time naming and attacking the villain, Eugene Debs, calling him King Debs, a would-be dictator, accusing him of alcoholism. The papers also exaggerated the strike's impact. The railroad had their own organization, the General Managers Association, or the GMA, founded in 1886, which consisted of all 26 rail companies that serviced Chicago. They decided the way to deal with the strikers was to bring in the government. Attorney General only appointed Edwin Walker as special federal prosecutor who sought a court injunction against the ARU based on the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, as well as the law against interfering with U.S. mail. President Grover Cleveland vowed, If it takes every dollar in the Treasury and every soldier in the United States Army to deliver a postal card in Chicago, that postal card shall be delivered. Debs and the ARU saw this trap and ordered its members everywhere not to impede the movement of mail cars. The ARU sent out hundreds of telegrams urging its members not to stop mail cars, but the GMA was putting Pullman and mail cars on every train. The ARU offered the GMA to let mail trains through if they would make trains with just mail cars. 
but the GMA refused as their concern was not to the mail. On July 2nd, a federal district court judge, Peter Grosskup, issued an injunction banning the ARU from interfering with the mail or other rail movement in interstate commerce or from attempting to convince rail workers to stop work. On the 3rd, a mob of two to 3,000 surrounded U.S. Marshals in the Chicago rail yards as he read the injunction aloud. Afterwards, he wired A.G. Olney, the reading of the writ met with no response except jeers and hoots. Shortly after, the mob threw a number of baggage cars across the track. Since when, no mail train has been able to move. I am unable to disperse the mob, clear the tracks, or arrest the men who were engaged in acts of the regime. And believe that no force less than regular troops of the United States can procure the passage of the mail trains or enforce the orders of the courts. Soldiers arrived later that day, eight companies of infantrymen, a troop of cavalry, and an artillery battalion, about 2,000 men. On July 4th, violence broke out, engines were crippled, whole trains turned over, tower men dragged from switching towers, most from crews not ARU members, making it worse. The U.S. Marshals deputized 2,000 men, untrained Union breakers. They tended to panic when confronted by large mobs. The following day, mobs estimated at 10,000 men and women moved from the Packing House District to the rail yard, destroying property and setting rail cars on fire, roughing up railroad officials and pushing freight cars off the rail. On the 6th, it got worse. An Illinois central manager shot two rioters, causing many acts of revenge. 700 freight cars were torched, train tracks blocked, and by the end of the day in Chicago, 13 people had been killed and 53 injured, and this was reported to happen across the country. Two dozen labor leaders met in Chicago to discuss a general strike in support of the rail workers. Many of the Chicago unions supported a general strike, as did Debs. AFL locals from across the country advised Gompers that they stood ready. The leaders decided battling both corporations and the government was not a winning idea. They wrote their conclusion. The present conflict has become surrounded and beset with complications so grave in their nature that we cannot consistently advise a course which would but add to general confusion. The public press ever alive to the interests of corporate wealth have so maliciously misrepresented matters that in the public mind the working classes are now arrayed in open hostility to federal authority. This is a position we do not wish to be placed in. We declare it to be in the sense of this. Conference that a general strike at this time is independent, unwise, and contrary to the best interests of the working people. On July 10th, Debs and three of his top aides were arrested in charges of interfering with the U.S. mail and obstructing interstate commerce. Released on bail, they were re arrested a week later on the more serious charge of contempt of court for disregarding the injunction. The use of the Sherman Act against unions set a precedent that resulted in hundreds of cases over time. The results of the Supreme Court interpreting what Congress had legislated, the result was not what corporations hoped for. It pushed many unions to become more radical and the few, like the AFL and its leaders, Gompers, to be more compliant. Although Pullman was the clear winner, 
it did not go unscathed. Many spoke out against company townships. Chicago courts ruled it violated its incorporation. Non-manufacturing buildings had to be sold. Within 10 years, the town no longer existed. New ones popped up occasionally, failed, and eventually disappeared forever. President Cleveland held a congressional inquiry. The commission report bemoaned that both labor and capital had become so concentrated that in times of strife they could not could wreak havoc with the entire economy. They challenged the wisdom of the ARU to allow Pullman factory workers into a railroad union, but in even stronger terms, blamed Pullman for assuming dual roles of employer and landlord, for refusing to submit disputed issues to arbitration, and scolded the rail barons and their GMA for scheming to destroy the ARU. As an illegitimate combination when it was itself a combination, it also placed some blame on the government for not adequately controlling monopolies and corporations, and for failing to reasonably protect the rights of labor and to readdress wrongs. In 1895, two poorly planned and executed assassination attempts on Pullman's life failed. He felt his employees were behind these attempts. He also became obsessed by the idea that when he died, his employees or ex-employees would still or desecrate his body. Debs was sentenced to six months for violating July 2nd injunction. Debs also faced trial on charges of conspiracy to interfere with U.S. mail. During the trial, a juror became ill and the trial was put on hold and never pursued. The issue of the Sherman Act against labor was not settled until 1908 when the Supreme Court ruled against labor. Thank you, listeners. I appreciate the time it takes to listen to these. Please share this podcast with your friends, family, and anyone that you know that's in a union or is interested in becoming a member of a union. We can be reached at www.laborknowyourrights.com, all one word. Also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. You can also reach us at laborknowyourrights.com at gmail.com. Any suggestions on future episodes, questions, ideas, or just you want to say hi or thank you, feel free to contact us there. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. (laughs) 